Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. November 16, 2020. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. In fairness, it probably isn't everything you wanted to know, but it should be at least some of the things you kind of wanted to know. This is Awesome Today. Awesome Today is a mostly daily show about stuff that might be awesome. Don't overcomplicate it. It's barely edited and sometimes offensive. Enjoy it and have an awesome today. Would you? Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm here. Good. I'm in a lot of pain today. I my know. my back has decided to be angry today, but without the benefit of meds, I'm just going to choose to continue to live my life. All right. You could take meds. There's nothing wrong with taking a med every now and again. I don't need them. Okay. You're powering through, obviously. Yeah. Would you like to know how I am? Um, if I can see you through the tears in my eyes. I'm just <laughs> kidding. It's not It's not that overwhelming. How are you, in fact, my dear? At this moment, I am giddy. I was just going to suggest perhaps giddy. Yes. Because you're so, you've been so excited. I've been for so excited. this episode to talk about the Queen's Gambit. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. It's been bothering me for days. It may not be the only time you do it during this episode. It's true. It's true. We're going to, one, skip everything about the normal formatting that we normally do and go straight into this. And two, understand that though she is shy to admit it, Meg is producing this episode, which I'm not even entirely sure why I'm here Stop it. Because you're the talent. Now you're also the producer. I'm just... I feel like there's another podcast I will not name that we've heard where just randomly the quote-unquote co-host is like, yeah, and <laughs> that's about all they offer here and there, and so that's why I feel like I'm along for this ride. That's not true. Are you sure? I'm positive. Number one, you are the producer of Awesome Today. You graciously allowed me to have this spot because I can't stop talking about the Queen's Gambit. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> 
See, I can do that part. Um, I can even throw a fist as I say it. Yeah! For those who watch. Yes, you could. And the, the viewers will really get the full appreciation of that fist thrown in the air. Yes. Um, producing is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You produce the show daily. I do. It is a lot. And I just want to acknowledge that for everybody. It's Thank a lot you. of work that goes Thank into you. getting an awesome today together. Um, secondly, were it not for you, the Queen's Gambit may have never come into my life. Well, let's extend that one step further and say, were it not for the seemingly unfortunate ice storm mm. and us being without power for eternity, mm-hmm. I may not have taken a chance on it. Okay, that's fair. That's right. This The timing coalesced. So this isn't... Cosmically. I'm not a touchy-feely guy. Don't ever make that mistake. You won't, I know. I don't want anyone else to either, though. Um, but I am working to have a better perspective on life and things. And there's a lot of things that we've identified from the seemingly very unfortunate series of events, not the game, but the events that surrounded the ice storm and all of that. And I'm able to identify quite a few positive things from it, not least of which is this delightful show. Series, as it were. Series, yes. You brought it into, you watched it, you enjoyed it, you had a lot of words about it. Mm -hmm. Then you rewatched it as I watched it for the first time. That's right. So that's the context for us both being big, big fans of The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. So I thought we could just, as a little bit of background, say we are presuming with this episode that either you have watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Or you don't want to. Or or you don't want to. Either way. You either have watched it and you're here for the discussion or you're like, I'm not going to watch it, but I enjoy people talking about things they enjoy on the pop culture. So... Plenty of spoilers. There will. This is a full discussion. This is an absolute spoiler episode. Yes, absolutely. So, if you have not watched it, but you plan to, and you do not want to be spoiled, come back another day for this episode of Awesome Today. So, let's kind of pull back a little bit from the Netflix series and talk about the basis for the actual story of The Queen's Gambit. Very well. Well... In 1983, author Walter Tevis wrote a novel of the same name, The Queen's Gambit. Yes. And that is where this whole thing came from. Good old Walter. Walter Tevis. Not to be confused with Wallace D. Waddles, but this is Walter Tevis. Yes, that's right. So it is a fictional story. Can I point out one thing right now, just right out of the gate? Yes, please. I chose to completely reword the notes of the first sentence because the way it was written was to say Walter Tevis's novel. <laughs> and any time you're assigning ownership with an apostrophe S on the end of a word with an S, I'm really unsure yeah. as to how to pronounce it. And so rather than learn the rules that apply, I alter language. I like to that. Fit. That is a very pragmatic way to go about Go about being correct with your grammar. Go about the correct being of grammar. <laughs> yep, I did not know how to finish it. <laughs> no, truly, that's good. That's good. That was a good uh, on-your-feet workaround. Yeah, that's what, that's what I do. Um, so it is a fictional story. It does follow the life of an orphan who ends up being a chess prodigy. Her name is Beth Harmon. She's our protagonist, our main character of the story. Yes. Um, she is trying to become the world's greatest chess player while also struggling with some 
deep emotional issues, and also drug and alcohol dependency. Yes. One interesting thing that I read about the Walter Tevis novel is that Walter Tevis himself worked into Beth's story this idea of becoming addicted to medication when you're a child because he himself had um, a heart condition or had to have heart surgery when he was a child and had to be on a lot of medications around that event. And so he, he wrote in an interview or said in an interview that writing about Beth's struggles that began in childhood was very um, cathartic for him as he was kind of processing his own experience. Well, as a man of twos, Mm -hmm. I'd like to interject two things. One, I want to really emphasize the very first statement that you made in that this is a fictional story. Yes. Now, I can't remember if it was in conversation with all of you awesomes or if it was just between you and I, Meg, Mm -hmm. but I know I've made the statement previously that I thought this was loosely based on a true story. It is not in fact. And so if I led anyone astray, my apologies. I am bound to do that from time to time. Um, Dang it. What was the second thing? Don't know. It'll come up later. It'll come to you for sure. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So it's, it's bound to pop up later. The time frame for The Queen's Gambit is it begins in the mid-1950s and then proceeds on into the 60s. Now, I do feel like, I don't know about the novel, but in the Netflix series, I do feel like time is kind of squishy. Yeah, it's yeah. It's really hard to even really know how old Beth is at various points in the story, let alone what year it is. Right. I feel like they kind of contextually and contextually give us clues both through the clothes that people are wearing, the music that Beth is listening to. So you can kind of get some general ideas, but it's not like one of those shows that tracks down every month of the calendar ticking off as the story progresses. What is the thing called where there is something that is way out of place in terms of time and history? Um, Anachronism. Yes, there are many of those, I feel quite sure. Okay, yes. All right. So, oh no, I messed up the notes. Please bear with me. Oh no. Okay, here we are then. Uh, oh, there we go. Okay. Um, just in terms of the show and how things have unfolded with it, on October 28, just a few couple short weeks ago, this became the most watched series of the day, at least, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has given it, a, it has on Rotten Tomatoes, rather, a 100% approval rating. Dang! Um, average rating, and I'm not sure how all this works out, I'm not a... a wickedly familiar with Rotten Tomatoes, but they have a rating of 8.07 out of 10. That's very good. And it was it was a significant number of reviews. It's not like they offered this up after three people right. early birded their way in and were like, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's how early birds talk. <laughs> Definitely. They They're, got to. They're yeah. up early. They're yeah. going to talk like that. Um, the New Yorker has gone all the way to call this the most satisfying show on television. Whoa. All right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I mentioned this in, in teaser to this episode um, that I'd read a an outside article saying that, you know, here it's pretty amazing that here's a show that lands in the middle of everyone's preoccupation with election. Yes. And certainly also in the midst of everybody's very real distraction of living in quarantine. And yet out of nowhere, seemingly, this show is screamingly popular and they're... 
supposition, which I don't disagree with whatsoever, is that this has really hit home for a lot of people because in a time where some of us may struggle and certainly some more than others to really identify some positive things during a, a seemingly negative time. Here's a very positive story about winning and success and overcoming negative odds. And it's, it's just something we're hungry for right now. Yes. I would fully embrace that idea and yeah. agree with it too. Now, since, um, since again, here's me restructuring language to avoid the awkward ownership Apostrophe S. Since Tevis wrote this book in 83, you may be asking yourself, well, it's 2020. Why right. did it take so freaking long yes. to get this movie to the screen? Mm -hmm. um, and there were actually a few attempts, at least two that I'm aware of, maybe more. Um, the most recent of which was in 2008. Mm. Um, and they had named as both director and as one of the stars to be in this, Heath Ledger. And of course, yes. anybody familiar with him and his history knows that this is roughly the time he passed away, which was directly before production began on the show. So yes. what looked to be, you know, eight, uh, 12 years ago, rather, such a promising introduction fell flat before anybody even knew about it. Exactly. Yeah. And I was reading, too, that Heath Ledger really connected to the story of Beth Harmon with her... The addiction. The addiction stuff. issues with her genius. Heath Ledger was certainly being an extremely talented actor. He was... He's recognized as being a pretty decent chess player himself. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah I thought that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so, so sad that... I mean, this was one of his last things, and this was going to be his... Big screen de directorial debut. Yeah. Um, he was very excited about this project. So, so sad that that didn't come to be. Um, but yeah, so we do finally have the Netflix seven-part miniseries limited production. Which I think was originally scheduled to be a six-parter. Oh, really? And they, and they just had to push yeah, it. Yeah, they, they let them have one more. Well, that makes sense because as we've talked about, every episode of this genuinely plays out like a movie right. in and of itself. Right. So I can see how they just had so much material that they had to push through. That does make sense that it was going to be a six-parter. Seven feels a little awkward, but... They went with it, and I'm glad they did. Yes. Um, so Beth, our, again, our main character, stumbles on the game of chess uh, for the first time as an orphan in, and I cannot remember the name of the home that they live in. It starts in. with an M. Yes. And I can't remember what it is either. It's a it's a girl's yes. orphanage slash school. Yeah. Almost, almost convent-like in ways. Right. Exactly. I do think it was maybe supposed to be a Catholic orphanage probably, probably um in kentucky but so that's where she is taken after her mother is uh dies in a car accident that beth was also in and survived miraculously which that's an interesting theme is um if you kind of look at the bigger picture of like if you look at um, the hero's journey the epic mm -hmm. many times they're for the hero or the the main character for the prodigy for the chosen one there's a near brush with death yeah when they're young and that's certainly are you going to go into this later no go ahead okay well certainly and you get at the beginning and early parts of most episodes sometimes somewhere in the middle you get a bit of a flashback to beth's right. childhood yeah and so yeah beth beth's uh, um what's the word i'm looking for biological father uh, she was born out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. um, and it was her mother's, 
you, you see her mother's kind of last-ditch effort to try to get help from the biological father to raise Beth, but he has since moved on, has his own family things. Um, and the car accident was not an accident. No, it right. was her mother's planned. She didn't know how to deal with anything, so she planned on ultimately killing them both, yeah. committing suicide in, by mm -hmm. vehicular accident, and Beth miraculously survives it. Yes. So she's sent to live in this orphanage's group home situation, sent on an errand to clean uh, the erasers. Mm -hmm. The chalkboard erasers in the basement and stumbles upon Mr. Scheibel, the janitor, playing the game of chess. And so all against it, himself. Against himself, mm -hmm. yes. All it takes is one glance at the chessboard, and she's immediately fascinated. And in subsequent visits, as he begins to kind of give her just like the little breadcrumbs of how the game is played, it all completely makes sense for her. Now, for her, for Beth, she feels like being able to uh, save her, the tranquilizers mm -hmm. that the girls are given during the day, um, save them for night, which her friend Jolene tells her to do, yes. um, allows her to basically, I mean, have a little bit of a drug trip. And then when she's kind of high on these tranquilizers, her mind begins to see on the ceiling the different moves of chess and all of the possibilities. And yes. this is where her extraordinary talent and, again, brilliance for the game begins to develop. Indeed. Oh, so, so yeah. So it does, it follows the path of the of the epic sports story, mm -hmm. of which we have many in our culture. Right, right. Uh, which chess is not a sport, understand. Right. But it's following that, that path of how things play out. Yeah. It's definitely also a significant coming-of-age story. Um, through the point of view, the lens of a woman succeeding in a traditionally and conventionally male-dominated world. Yes. So. Yes, which we may have more words about later. Oh, yeah. We'll see how things unfold there. Yeah. Um, in terms of the name itself, uh, the Queen's Gambit, a gambit is an opening move in chess in which the player is willing to sacrifice pieces to gain a later positive advantage in the game. Uh, the Queen's Gambit, in particular, is the most, arguably, the most popular gambit, and the only one that is said to be sound against an opponent's perfect play. The other ones, meaning that the other ones, you you can pull it off, but it would require somewhat of a mistake mm. by the other player somewhere en route, but the Queen's Gambit's unique in that fashion. This is the opening move that she uses in the final episode in her victorious game against Borgov for the World Championship. Yeah. Um, and then just as an example of kind of a, a different means of this, this action of giving up in hopes of gaining an advantage, in her first game against Benny, they, uh, which is one of the characters you'll run across, they trade queens. Yeah. And... Then she ends up losing that game. And the second game against him where she does defeat him, she allows the same thing to occur but reacts differently mm. than she did the first time and ultimately defeats him in uh, it's either 30 moves or a hair under or something like that. Okay, interesting. So I, I really feel like, and maybe I'm being too artsy here, but I really feel like in there there is this concept to be appreciated of sacrifice for later gain. Yes, exactly. That's really something interesting to think about, um, especially all that Beth 
does sacrifice in terms of having a social life and a regular school experience and some of those other formative things, her entire life is consumed with chess from very early on. So let's talk about some of the other characters. Again, I'm presuming everybody has fairly well watched and become, Mm -hmm. you know, familiar with who these people are. So I don't want to get too in the weeds on all of the different characters, but that's one of the best things I think about the series that makes it so engaging is not only Beth, an extremely compelling character and, um, the actress who plays her, Anya, now I, I should have written this in my notes. Yeah, she has a hyphenated yes. last name. Um, is fantastically talented and so, like, you just can't look away. She has such a unique look and a unique way of yeah. being present on the screen. So that's all very fascinating. But the supporting cast is filled with all kinds of characters. Yes. Um, might, might I add, I think very purposefully when casting, they picked some some things to further accentuate the uniqueness. She is a fire red redhead, yeah, which isn't something that we see regularly. Right. Yeah, um, just a lot of interesting things. Yeah, totally. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about her first friend that she makes in the orphanage, Jolene, or that rather Jolene kind of yes. inserts herself as a sister slash mother figure. Absolutely. Jolene is a few years older than her and has Mm -hmm. been in the orphanage for a while and kind of steps in as a friend and, like you said, kind of takes her under her wing, um, has compassion for this poor lost soul of Beth uh, from the time she gets there. Uh, It's So it's through Jolene, ultimately, as you look at the arc of Jolene through uh, and their friendship throughout Mm -hmm. the story, uh, Jolene is who... Beth ultimately is able to learn how to become comfortable with herself. Yes, because Jolene never... Jolene hasn't created an image of who she thinks Beth is. Jolene is not trying to get Beth to behave in a way that she desires her to. Exactly, exactly. Whereas everybody else kind of... I mean, except for the people at the orphanage, once she goes out into the world, and I suppose besides the Wheatleys who adopt her... Almost everybody else that plays a major role in her life sees her as Beth Harmon, the chess prodigy. Mm-hmm. But right. Jolene right. saw her from the time that she was first brought into the orphanage, you know, as a young, vulnerable, scared, scared girl and the struggles that she had. And so, yeah, Jolene can both see it and accept and love Beth for who she truly is. Um, I would posit that this is the only relationship perhaps ever in her life. Yeah. That has been this way because even even the other people at the orphanage all have an image to which they desire the orphans to oh that's true adhere to yeah exactly through even the use of at the time or at least the beginning of the series it was legal and regular for right. orphanages to give their their pe- their young kids uh, tranquilizers exactly yeah um, and so. Yeah, it's in, if, you, if you skip ahead then to the end of the series when Jolene comes back into Beth's life and kind of helps Beth to get a hold of herself and see herself for who she is. She'd been spiraling mm-hmm. into a very dark place uh, when Jolene comes in to her life again and kind of walks alongside her and helps her to wake up to who she is into the damage that she's doing to herself, the way she's really... Um, in a way that a lot of genius people do. So um, self-sabotaging herself and her success and her future. 
then when Beth kind of is able to align herself with who she really is, that is when her relationships with the other tangential characters there, uh, they can kind of see Beth as a person, a fully right. formed person, not just an international chess star. Right, or, the, or even just the image of what they want her to be for them. Exactly. Um, and it's fascinating to me because, and the writing is so good, it's, it's literally within the conversational exchanges between Beth and Jolene right. that you can, Beth is trying to figure out what Jolene wants her to be. And Jolene's like, no, I, I want you to be you. Exactly. In fact, that's such a great point. I feel like the show does a really good job of walking a balance between um, Jolene as a friend and Jolene playing the role of the trope of the black savior, which is, uh, especially in American culture, something we see like a sort of black spiritual guide mm -hmm. who comes in and instructs the main character on how to get back on the right path. And I think that they give Jolene some specific lines to work with and a specific backstory. She, Jolene even says to Beth, I'm not here to save you. I can't even save myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some critiques have pointed out that maybe the show's treatment of Jolene is a little problematic, that they lean a little too heavily on her just kind of popping back into her life with this life-saving wisdom so there's that, but I that's do a, think... That's a weak critique, because yeah. it's even, again, within the language of the script, and I hope I'm not walking over what you intended to say, but Jolene even says, hey, look, when we were together in the orphanage, I was there for you. Right. And when you left and were gone, mm -hmm. I spent my ice cream money to buy magazines that I saw you on the cover of, and, and even though you weren't physically there, that you were there for right. me in yeah. those moments. Yeah. And so as I've continued to follow you, I'm not showing up out of nowhere. I've continued to follow right. you and track you. And here I am now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think too, that you see with Beth's inability, like once she leaves the orphanage, very understandably so, she does not, except for writing to Mr. Scheibel for $5. Yes. She really, she doesn't ever go back and visit Mr. Scheibel. She doesn't go back to pay him back. She doesn't go back to visit the, you know, sort of headmistress or anybody else. Right. It's like she just wanted to completely close that door. But at the same time, she never deals with the trauma of being an orphan and landing there and, and right. those types of things. Um, and she may just not have had the emotional capacity to do that. And so only when Jolene comes and they literally physically go back for Mr. Scheibel's funeral, right. it's only in those moments that Beth has the freedom to go back and revisit that chapter of her life and yeah. has this emotional breakthrough that without Jolene's presence may not have happened. Right. And I think very worthy of pointing out as well. So we discussed her biological dad and the non-access to a relationship with him. Her adoptive father was a whole nother mess of his own. Yes. And so she's had no father, no no adult male figure uh, in her life, much less any male figure in her life who was there positively for her, except for Mr. Scheibel. But I don't think she could have possibly realized that and really appreciated it until... She's back for, again, Jolene and her go back to go to his funeral. And then she goes back to the basement mm -hmm. where she first met him. She she sees all of what he's done in her absence to track her progress, finds an old photo of he and her yeah. together. Uh, if that's the correct pronouning. I don't know. Yes, that's uh, right. And that's when everything hits home. He was he was the healthy 
relationship there that has eluded her the rest of her life. Yeah. Well, and he's the next character I wanted to talk about. Yes. That's a perfect segue. He's a stud. I love him. Yes. Quiet, seemingly angry, but not actually angry guy. Yeah. And that's a trope too, right? Yes, absolutely. This sort of brooding mentor. Yeah. Uh, the, the grumpy heart of yes. butter. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so yes. Um, he he does change the course of her life with chess, but it was never it was never him stepping in saying, "Hey Beth, why don't you come check out chess?" No. While she claimed erasers, all that she watched. He knew she was watching. He wasn't going to hide, but he wasn't going to invite her in. He knew that uh, you could almost relate this a lot to the way that uh, we would perceive religion works with God, mm. and that there's an there's an an openness mm -hmm. and an invitation and a pursual of each person in the way that matters to them. So Mr. Scheibel allowed her to satisfy her curiosity by looking in. She came over to ask about it. He's like, no, no, this, this isn't for you. Right. And then she proceeds to rattle off all the details that she's gathered through her spying on his game. And he's like, okay, sit down, let's play a game. And then every time, you know, she starts to get, a little bit belligerent about, well, tell me about that. He shuts it down. Well, not this time, another day. Yes. Keeps the curiosity, the desire uh, in her high. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yes, and she she wrote him a letter. This was after she was adopted. She writes a letter back to him because she needs money. She needs $5, which was not a small amount of money in the, the 50s or 60s to go enter a chess tournament. Promises she'll... Pay him back plus with her winnings. Yeah. He sends it, just sends back an envelope, no note, anything, just an envelope with five $1 bills. Yep. He's a stud. I love him. Um, and again, then this, this big picture at the end when she's touching back through that area in, in the process of her own healing and growth to recognize what a grace he was in her life. It's very touching. Yeah, so he allowed her to have the money for her first chess tournament. His death ultimately brings Jolene back, and then, mm -hmm. then Jolene gives Beth the money to go to her last tournament, at least that we see yes, in, yeah. in the series. Uh, Jolene gives or loans the money to Beth to get to Moscow yeah. in the end. Kind of taking over the role of Mr. Scheibel. Yeah, I gave you the Mr. Scheibel discussion point because... I can't really talk through that moment <laughs> when she goes back to the basement. It's pretty rough. Emotionally, <laughs> it's pretty rough. Yeah. I was crying, wasn't I? You were. I told you before the episode, <laughs> yes. I believe my statement was, you will laugh, you will cry, and you may mess your pants. Yeah, Two that's of the true. three came that's true. That's true. I did not mess my pants, so that's good. Okay, so another huge... Uh, impact character is going to be Mrs. Wheatley or Alma, which I don't think she hardly ever gets called in this story. Right, only by Mr. Wheatley. Yes, exactly. He's so, a real turd. Yeah. So we have Alma who she convinces her husband somehow, some way to adopt a child. It doesn't ever specifically tell us, but I think it implies that they had tried to have children. She'd had at least one miscarriage, it seems like. Yes. I even felt like, and they didn't direct it a they did not address it directly, but it felt like to me even perhaps that this was 
they got married because of this birth, or oh, rather this pregnancy, okay. and then miscarried, and then... And then they were trapped. Here they are trapped in yes. that era of it's not okay to divorce or any of that, right. and, and it was a pretty rough marriage. Yes. Well, I just think that Amit is such an interesting character, played really engagingly by Muriel Heller, who's honestly more at home behind the camera, has done a lot more directing of movies than Has acting. She? Yes. But she's friends with um, the director of the uh, the Queen's Gambit, and uh, they have, they've worked together, and so he had her in this role, and I think she does fantastically. Yes, she does. But you kind of look at her, she's kind of a tragic figure in some ways, um, the victim of some unfulfilled dreams of being, mm -hmm. she was a very talented pianist, but had terrible stage fright and never really performed publicly. Again, had this unfulfilled dream of having a happy marriage. Her husband is never there. They basically abandoned all but, all but, uh, divorces her really in terms yes, of yes. living separately from her, had an unfulfilled dream of motherhood. Um, and I, so, I feel like really this is version 2.0 of Beth's original mother. Yeah. And it's, yeah. and it's both of them, both of them gifted people, bad circumstance, failing, and it's like Beth is the third try. Yeah, yeah. To see if she can overcome, but certainly at risk of following in the path of the former two mothers. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting how, you know, you could look at it as Alma, the Wheatleys, kind of rescuing, quote-unquote rescuing Beth from the orphanage or saving her from a life of being an orphan or being stuck in the system. But ultimately, we really see Alma come to life through Beth's yes. adventures. Yes. And, you know, some people I've seen in comment sections talking about how, you know, Alma just seized on the opportunity, the, like the financial opportunity of Beth. But I don't think that's how the story shows it at all. No. She's delighted. I mean, the money is an, a factor because Alma is left with no access to the money that Mr. Wheatley is supposedly making. Right. Um, except for a very small allowance. But um, so there is that. But she's actually very good at being Beth's manager. She puts yeah. them in all of the hotels and the flights. And they you just see this vivaciousness. She, and this, she calls the school to lie about absences absolutely on Beth's Absolutely covers Beth. Great parent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but they have all these adventures together. And you just see her really, you see this spark of life come yes. to Alma. And it's not because she's like preying on Beth no. at all. It's like... Because of what the doors that Beth opens through her wanting to go to all of these tournaments, and Beth wants to go play in these. It's right. not like Alma right. forcing was, her to. It was Beth that drug Alma into it. Yes, exactly. But with her being able to get out, get out of the town that they're in, and get out of the house and go and live yes. some life. Some recreation of self. Yes. And they were the same. Yeah. They were the same. Both Beth and Alma, addicted to tranquilizers, right. addicted to alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and so in many ways, it was almost sisters. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I thought that was just such a fascinating relationship. I'm really surprised. And I mean, I mean, the the series tracks with the book. So, you know, this was all in Tevis's imagination originally. But it's surprising to me how early she dies in the story. Yeah. But again, that does further put Beth on the path of having to come into her own without anybody else's, um, you know, vision for who she is. Yes. So I had to throw this, these next characters The in. twins. Of course you did. We cannot ever overlook twins. Yes. Be dishonest to ourselves. Matt yeah. and Mike, um, 
What? They're played by Matthew and Russell Dennis okay. Lewis. Okay. Um, the characters, Matt and Mike. Yes. Played by those guys. Yes, exactly. Um, they also, interestingly, worked with uh, the director, Scott Frank, on a 2017 Western series called Godless. Um, also featured Thomas Brody Sangster or Benny. Mm-hmm. Um, the twins exemplify the broader understanding of Beth as skeptics turned fan. And I think also very worthy of note as things unfold in our exploration of characters that these are at least initially the only two, hmm, I was going to say the only two that don't come in with a preconceived thing that they want Beth to live up to. That's not entirely true because they had come in with the preconceived negative connotation that how could a woman play chess? Right. But they definitively amongst all of, all of the characters period beyond Jolene, uh, much less the other male characters, they are the ones who most readily and most quickly let go of their preconceived notions and, recognize Beth for who she is, what she is, what her ability is. And that's probably why they are two of the earliest and longest lasting friends that she has. Absolutely. And I just love that. I love the way they're written in this. Yeah. Have you seen that series, Godless? It's a Netflix original. I don't think I have. I, it okay. sounds so familiar. And maybe it's one of those where I just, it's been too long. And if I had started watching it, I'd be like, oh yeah. Yeah. But I, I can't place it right now. I think it's just like a one season Western series. Again, Scott Frank was the director on it. So yeah, I thought that was really an interesting tie-in. So, of course, we also have the character of D.L. Towns, or just Towns, Towns as yes. he goes by in the series. A very pretty man. Very, very delightful to look at. He is, he's a good-looking man. He is. If I had leanings that way, he'd be on my list. <laughs> well, Beth is fascinated with him from the moment she first lays eyes on him. Which is the, the, the first tournament the that she competes first, in. She yeah, she plays against him. That Kentucky Championship. Yes. Um, she He is the only person through the series that she seems conflicted about. She knows she's going to beat him. But you can see, and again, the actress um, who plays Beth just does an amazing job with just her face. You can tell in her eyes and the way she's thinking about this. She knows she's going to beat him, but she's just like... Gaga over him from first glance. I think she doesn't want to beat him, but she's right? going to beat him. I think there's psychology going on here. Do we want to go through this now or save it until we finish Let's the other Let's save characters? that because I think okay. your insight into the Towns thing is so powerful. Now, Beth doesn't know this from the start, but it's pretty. It's made pretty clear in the series that Towns is gay. Yes. And so, uh, you know, she's conflicted about beating him in this chest chess match and then later in the series towns would say he was a little conflicted about her too he says that he was she had him feeling confused yes um yes. there for a little bit so there's definitely chemistry there absolutely um for sure and you know even though he's not really in her life that long for Beth, who is extremely emotionally unavailable, she's got a lot of things going on right. that really inhibit her growth in relationships and understanding of how relationships are supposed to work. And so for her, Towns is like the love of her life, the only one that she's ever actually been in love with. Yep. So yep. that comes back in the end. Yes. Too. So we move on to Harry Beltic, which is Harry who she played for the state championship yes, in that first, first yes. tournament. Yeah. And this is, help me with, with some of the notes here. Okay. So this is 
played by Harry Melling, okay. who is a British actor who played Dudley Dursley. And there's a lot of British actors in this. They're like almost all British. Isn't she? Um, I think she is. Towns she is, is for sure. Towns is. So is. Uh, so is Benny. Benny. Yeah. yeah. A lot of them, and they just they pull off those American accents they really flawlessly. They really it's fantastic. Do. Yes. Okay, but so you played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies. Um, yes, yes, yes. Earlier this year, we saw him in the Netflix um, original film, The Old Guard. He plays, I don't know if you remember this, he plays the, the sort of villain, the bad guy, the big pharma. That's right. The guy that owns the big corporation that yeah. is, you know, interwoven throughout. So I didn't he's, realize he's that. He's kind of, at least Netflix-wise, he's yeah. really exploded onto the scene from seemingly nowhere. Yeah. So he's a little bit all over the place, but he does a fantastic job of this... Um, St starts out kind of powerful chess player and then kind of becomes a little bit pitiful in right, his right. obsession with Beth. He was the big fish in a small pond. Uh, yes. And so, yeah, here here they are in their competition. And, and through the cinematography, they do a fantastic job of just painting him as repulsive and an egotistical ass and disgusting. Um, and yet through the process, while Beth is obsessed with chess he very much becomes obsessed with her. If there's anything that distracts her from chess, it's Towns. Yes. And that's it, which yeah. probably only makes her that much more appealing to him. Yes. Because it's kind of unobtainium. Yes, exactly. Um, overwhelmed with her genius. He, he's overwhelmed by her genius, but he's he's also very interested, I think originally romantically interested. As time goes on, he it's real. He very much cares for her as a person, he's concerned for her. Mm -hmm. um. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And, and it's probably... As we see that unfolding and that becoming more real between the two, it's all of a sudden she becomes very disinterested. Right. She's she's torn because she she very plainly is in desperate need of real relationships, very plainly like anyone would be desperate for a, a healthy uh, romantic interest somewhere. Right. Um, which, and, and even especially from her perspective, just a healthy relationship with any kind of man right. in her life, whether it's romantic or otherwise. Yeah. Um, with what's gone on with a failed father, a failed father, and on and on. Right. Um, but yeah, it gets, it gets weird where then she gets, every time he gets soft enough to to be real, she, she shuts it down. Definitely. Um, 
I mean, and he's just, again, it's a little pitiful. He's like, I got my teeth fixed for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, all and again, of this the, stuff. The original scene when they're competing, they, they do such a great job with the cinematography showing just how hideous these teeth are. He's even sucking yeah. at his teeth, and it's like, you bad. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and he he spent money to get teeth fixed for her. Yeah. Even though she had no idea, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's been some questionable discussion in like on Reddit and other places. And it's like, well, when Harry first met her, she was underage. Like she was a That's she true. was a teenage girl. It's true. But he is like seems to be just starting university at the when they play their first match together. So it's kind of like yeah. one of those situations where it's like... I the older you get, the less that age exactly. gap means. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, this yeah, was yeah. an era where cradle robbing was more acceptable. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So the other main interest in her life, both as a chess rival and a romantic love interest, is Benny Watts. Who is, who is also a prodigy. Yes. Also a prodigy. That's right. An actual um, you know champion, traveled, did the whole Europe circuit and mm -hmm. all of the things. So he's played by to Thomas uh, Brody Sangster. He's a British actor who played way back when he was an actual child. He had a role in the uh, popular film Love Actually. He played Sam. He played in the Nanny McPhee movie, the role of Simon on Phineas and Ferb. What? the voice of Ferb. Wow. <laughs> you don't hear from Ferb very often, wow. but that is Thomas Brody Sangster. On Game of Thrones, he played Jojen Reed. So he's grown up. I mean, talk about a child actor who has really, you know, kept his head on straight, has yeah. had a lot of, you know, solid roles. So Benny Watts is fascinating to me. He's he presented as this sort of like chess pirate, like yeah, kind the of bad a, boy of chess. A, a country outlaw yes. pirate. He, he wears a weird hat. He carries a knife. Like he carries Just a bizarre, knife. Bizarre. <laughs> was so hilarious. Front and center on his belt. Oh, yeah. It's more prominent than a tie bar. Which you know the character of Vinny, he wouldn't use that knife to hurt anyone right. for any reason. Right. But, He'd cut himself trying to get it out. Yeah, for sure. So he's kind of part of this New York subculture. So when when um, Beth even first comes across him, it's in the lobby of a chess tournament in Cincinnati. And he, you know, surrounded by fans who are, you know, he, he's dispensing his advice yes, and the chess yes. wisdom and all Sage of this. Sage knowledge on the underlings. Yes, exactly. He seems very worldly. He seems very sophisticated. Again, he has been traveling. He has been winning tournaments. Um, I just thought it was so funny, had the wardrobe choices. And again, I don't know if this is from the original material right, or not, right. but I feel like the, the long duster coat and the cowboy hat and all that, it feels like a little bit like, okay, we get it. He's the maverick. Like he's the, well, he, he's the brilliant eccentric. Yes. exactly. And so it's acceptable. And you even overlook, I didn't notice nearly as many weird things about it until my second watch through mm -hmm. because you just accept it. Well, yeah, he's an eccentric. Yeah. 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 I just thought it was funny. Sometimes it feels like a little bit too on the nose, but anyway, he makes her a fascinating character and definitely somebody who is fascinated by Beth. She's interested in him. They have this kind they have this chemistry. Mm -hmm. And yet again, this is another relationship that develops completely in the context of who they see each other as yes. in terms of chess, but not fully formed people. I think it's not until they get to his apartment in New York City and she sees like 
Like she starts, when they pull up on the curb and she starts walking up the steps to this yeah. gorgeous brownstone and like thinks that's where he lives because he lives this glamorous, exciting life. And no, he actually lives he, in the yeah, basement. He lives in the basement below the main basement. Exactly. And they're walking past everybody else's piled up trash bags waiting for trash day. Yeah. And she's like, Benny? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, are you dragging me in a corner to steal my kidneys? What's happening here? Right. I love that scene so much. But I think that the, that's the first time that Beth like really realizes like, oh, he's just a person. Yeah. And not know? even an impressive one. Right. Right, yeah. right, right. So, and um, finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about Cleo. Yes, Cleo. Cleo's a friend of Benny's originally, and um, she's Parisian, and talk about very sophisticated. She calls herself a vagabond. Yes. Rightfully, she just lives wherever she is. Yes. So, she kind of is um, a little bit of a party girl, uh, a model. And so, yep. she's, model. you know, obviously in this sort of party scene in the, in the 60s. Um, but has some depth to her and mm -hmm. really connects with Beth. Um, ends up being somebody who entices her down to have a few drinks and then uh, turns into more than that the night yes. before the first match against, what was the Russian's name? Borgov? Borgov, yes. Yeah, before their first match in Paris. And so because of that, there are rumors on the internet that perhaps Cleo was actually... A KGB agent. Yes. Though, and we talked about this a little bit pre-recording. Yeah. I really think, I, I can absolutely climb on board with the idea that she is a KGB agent and there to distract Beth. But I think in a very, at the extreme edge of it, in her perspective, she's only participating that way because she has to, but that she actually really likes Beth. Right. Yes. And talk about chemistry. There's definitely a chemistry between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. So yeah, she's just an interesting, and honestly, besides, you know, the opening, which has obviously a lot of women and girls in it, um, Beth doesn't really have girl friends, right? She doesn't really have friends, but the only people she can make connections with because she's fully immersed in this world is chess and chess is made up of men. Yes. And so Cleo represents one of the few like little glimmers of female friendship that Beth has throughout right. the whole thing. And someone that's not, uh, someone that's not living the conformed whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we have the example of both her, her mother and her adoptive mother who have tried to live within the conformed image, having no individuality, no, flexing into their own abilities and then i think very overlooked and yet very interesting as a continuation of that theme there was one girl in high school who was the popular girl yes. all of that who regularly did her best to embarrass beth and yes. all of that and in a couple different scenes later at least one i feel like there's more than one scenes later after beth has become the international phenom that she is, she runs across this gal in their hometown who offers up, you know, oh, we, you know, we barely graduated and I married so-and-so. She's there pushing her, her baby around, you know, and then, and then here comes our baby. And then in the bottom of the baby carriage is like a whole collection of booze bottles. A lot of booze. To me, very much just saying, here's yet another victim to someone that's just trying to live up to other people's expectations of them. Perhaps Beth being the savior of all of them in her own way by refusing to. Right. Yes. 
I didn't put this in the notes, but speaking of that scene, I think that this show does a very good job of offering commentary on how much women were both seeking self-medication and also that was being pushed on them in these mm-hmm. eras mm-hmm. Um, as a way of dealing with the sort of um, whatever situations they had found themselves in in life with limited access to things that women of like my generation right. would fully have access to. And so this idea of the, you know, girls being given tranquilizers from the time they're children right. to keep them calm, to keep them manageable. Um, Alma is being, being prescribed tranquilizers to basically make her more manageable for her husband. Um, and so you have this idea of women starting to, like kind of this is during the first waves of feminism. So they're starting to think like, why can't I go and do these things? And when they run into walls, you know, again, self-medicating with that. And again, like the, I was looking at the, um, what the actual green pills, the tranquilizers are, Mm -hmm. and it's a fictional pill in the story, but the kind of corollary was a medication heavily prescribed in the sixties called Librium. Yeah that um, was marketed to women to help them, like if they were going off to college, like take these with you, help you not feel so nervous. Um, You know, like as they were embarking on new adventures, maybe they would need something to kind of help them not be such nervous, parentheses, hysterical women. (laughs) And let me offer a perspective without us running too far off tracks in a way. That's something because reasons, whatever. We, we recognize um, oppression of, of women over time, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not so sure, and this is more of a recent opinion, I'm not so sure that it's terribly different for men either. Now, mm-hmm. definitively, there are things that men have been allowed or more readily accepted into than were women, mm-hmm. but there's still a ceiling. Right. It's more. It's far more of a, a socioeconomic and breeding yeah. thing than anything else. And for eons, men have more readily, even to the point of seeming like, well, you should do this. They've self-medicated through alcohol. That's what I was going to say. I mean, we joke about this, but we've seen an, a vintage ad for a whiskey dispenser. An ice-cold whiskey dispenser for the wall in the break room of an office place. Yes. It's my favorite photo I think I've ever found. It's amazing. But if you look at a, a series like Mad Men, for example, yes. and that's just one example. Yes, they drank as soon as they arrived at work literally, and they did not stop. It literally, as soon as they walk in the door, uh, drinks were being poured. They had carts in their offices yes. and those types of things. But absolutely, that's true, that self-medication is not something that is new to the modern era, and it's not gender-specific, for right. sure. We so. are all equally held down or the attempt to hold us down. Uh, It takes a lot of strength, a lot of insistence to not allow someone that strength. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I found this little nugget that I just thought was fascinating about the actual chess play, because here we have a cast of actors who are supposed to portray, you know, phenoms and world-class chess players um, do you want me to just go ahead and go right do ahead. this? Yes. Okay, so the Harry Melling, again, who plays Harry Belted, said that they brought in a famed chess teacher named Bruce Pandolfini. Who did he, am I remembering right, was he also instrumental in working with 
Tevis in the original writing. He may very well have been. If it wasn't him, there's someone that, that acted as consultant for both. Yeah. So he would come in and coach the players on how to portray this, help them to understand like who the chess player is, how well they're doing in the game, how a real chess player would physically move the pieces around the Mm -hmm. board, and how they might react if this move goes against them and they're starting to lose or they're starting to freak out, um, or if they see that they've won, that they're starting to see their path to victory, which I thought was, that's to me what makes this story so fantastic to watch, even if you don't care about or understand chess at all, which I do not understand how chess works at all. And yet, never at any point did I feel like, like it's all just so believable and so um, well-crafted that you don't even have to know a thing about chess. The amount of work that went into creating realistic chess play is overwhelming because along, and they picked, they picked very specifically games that existed, games that were played because within that within that world, within that community, every game is recorded move by move. And that's yes. often how people study, as is shown in the show. Yes. Um, people will buy entire books of games that have been played out and maybe it's grouped by opening moves or, or mm-hmm. closing or, or different things or just simply by the individual and the lifetime of their games. Yeah, exactly. And... So they did a ton of that. And there was there's a little bit of online criticism that they could have picked other games that were actually played by women or whatever other thing that the critic felt was important there. Right. Um, additionally, along with these other experts that they brought in, additionally, they did a lot where they took the first portion of a famous game up to a point where the original player was defeated and then used computer simulation and all kinds of things then to create a favorable outcome in the opposite direction. Oh, interesting. It was, yeah, I'm sure that the, and I don't mean this in a derogatory fashion, I'm sure that the chess geeks that were involved, they Mm -hmm. were living their best life. Yeah, totally. Oh, I love that. That is so fascinating. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about wardrobe design because this was so powerful for me. So I actually found an interview with the woman who was the uh, main costume designer. Um, I found the interview in Vogue. She's a Berlin-based costume designer named Gabrielle Bender. So she talked about how they intentionally started Beth's wardrobe out backwards, you know, just like really simple and basic. Beth literally does not know how to dress beyond wearing a uniform. And they help her by giving her the worst haircut in the history of women. Oh my gosh, yes. The haircut starting from the time that the little actress that plays her when she's a child and then on into her teenage years. Oh my gosh, it's atrocious. But so you can feel her pain. Yes. And so you see that um, she doesn't know how to dress. And also the Wheatleys don't have the money to buy her the cute, stylish clothes that the other girls. And by the the Wheatleys, you mean Alma. Because the dad has already vacated the scene. Yeah, it's completely checked out. So she does not know how to connect with the girls at school. But she does see this mannequin in the department store that Mrs. Wheatley takes her to. And she sees the dress that she really wants to wear. And so... One interesting thing that Bender does in the progression of Beth's clothing through wardrobe is she dresses her in a lot of checks. That first dress that she sees on the mannequin is in a check print, which is like a big wink to... Right? I hadn't even caught that. Yeah, I didn't either until I read this interview and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so clever. Um, check being a wink to the uh, chess move or the, the, the board. thing of, yes, the board, the, the board, board. Is, yes. 
and then check and checkmate and these types yes. of things. And so th there's that, but then also Bender felt like the checks make a more prominent, like a more forward statement than something that would be a little bit more feminine, like dressing her in florals. We right, don't really see right. Beth in florals throughout right. the entire thing. She's either in a check print or in solids. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. I love that as we see Beth grow and become more sophisticated as a person, her wardrobe also becomes yes, more sophisticated. As she becomes stronger, so does the wardrobe, and so does her visual impact become on yes. especially the men oh, yeah. around her who are just smitten immediately. Absolutely. I love that they let Beth be both mentally brilliant and also very interested in fashion. Yes, deeply, deeply feminine. Yes. It's joining that you don't have to be one or the other. Exactly, exactly. So often it's presented as like a dichotomy, like you can either be really into fashion or you can be an intellectual. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. for Beth, it's both. And I just absolutely love that. A Renaissance woman. Exactly. So um, the Paris Hermit dress. But not actually how a Renaissance woman was, right? You follow what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. The uh, dress that she wore, that beautiful dress that she's wearing in the opening scene where she gets out of the bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> soaking wet. But that beautiful dress in Paris was actually inspired by Pierre Cardin, a famous French designer. Now, I thought this was so fascinating. I'm just going to read this direct quote from Bender herself because this almost made me just cry my eyes out. In episode one, Beth is wearing a dress that her mother made for her, tenderly embroidered with her name. The color of this dress represents Beth's sense of home. We wanted to create a moment when she could once again come home, which is why she's wearing the same color dress in her final tournament in Moscow. The dress she is wearing when she is winning. We wanted to use this color to show that she finally feels confident and that her mother is with her. At this moment, she is not afraid of the man, of the man she has been most afraid of. In the beginning, it's a color that makes her really fragile, but in the end, the same color is a sign of her strength. It's symbolic of a homecoming. Indeed, indeed. Which they show in this article in Vogue, they show like a side-by-side -side of the mm -hmm. two dresses, and the, the shade is perfectly, they're the same, which I did not pick up on at all. Right. One There's thing, so much to catch. How could you? I know. One thing I did pick up on, and, and this confirms it from the wardrobe designer Bender, at the end, Beth is, after she's defeated Borgov, and she She's like going through the park in yeah. Moscow. She is wearing a white coat with white pants and a white cap. The idea is to convey that she is now the queen of the chessboard. Yes, she literally looks like the white the, queen. The queen or the white queen yes. chess piece. It's oh, gorgeous. So brilliant. I love it. So um a couple of other notes. Again, this director, Scott Frank, he is newer to directing. He has mostly been a writer, like a screenplay writer. He's done some pro producing. Um, one of those first writing uh, things that he has a credit for on IMDb is an episode of The Wonder Years. Oh, wow. So he's been around for a while. He wrote the screenplay for the 1995 film Get Shorty, which That's you've a great seen film. a number yeah. of times. He also more recently wrote the screenplay for the movie Logan, which um, is Marvel... Uh, what is that? Wolverine. Wolverine yeah. um, movie. So the movie has to kind of walk a line between realism, but also some kind of magical elements, particularly when it comes to um, a couple of things like the chess pieces appearing on the ceiling, her right. visions of the chess, and then also like the different montage sequences that they would do. Do you think that he pulls off the direction in a way that feels 
true to the aesthetic of the era? Did it ever feel distracting to you? What do you think about his directing choices for the most part? I, I think it was it was true enough. I think it was the, the romanticized memory of the era. And I think anything that was, at least for me, anything that was distracting was distracting in a beautiful way. Yeah. So it didn't take anything away. It just really, it added almost a magic feel as they, every every episode had, you know, aerial scenes and, and different shots. I think the first time it, it really just almost took my breath away was... Uh, the the final episode that her mother was her stepmother her adoptive mother was alive in when she was playing in the tournament in Mexico City and, and in terms of unrealistic you know it wasn't a dirty smoggy ugly Mexico City like is the reality mm -hmm. it was a gorgeous it was a magic time yeah yeah okay let's talk about some of the bigger themes yes um, from the series one thing that obviously stands out is this idea of somebody who is brilliant, who is a prodigy, and how they have to, not have to, they're inspired to live in a realm of true obsession over their thing. We see this in other sports figures. Mm -hmm. You think about the basketball star, eventual basketball star who, you know, spent all of their free time shooting free throws and whatever sports ball players do. Whatever, whatever you sports ballers are doing. That, you know, so it's the same with, you know, tennis stars. And you think of these different, like, the great monoliths of the sport. Um, you think about this with music, composers mm -hmm. who... It's it's fame. And I'm, I hope I'm not spoiling everything that you are building towards. If I am, tell me shut up and you talk. I, I have a little experience with this. I'm not saying that like, well, I'm the expert. Listen to me. <laughs> I, I did coach yeah. college ball at a... At a at the time, uh, a mid-major university that's gone on, we helped build that program towards what it is now, which is a true major. Yeah. Um, and we recruited kids out of horrible home backgrounds. Horrible, horrible home backgrounds that you would just be appalled to know even exist. Mm -hmm. And it's, it is a struggle with fame, but it's the exact struggle that you and I have been discussing for the, amongst ourselves for the past six plus months to say, believing that you deserve anything good right. happening to you yeah. because of what you've grown up hearing, seeing, being a part of. And I think that's really a major place that addiction can come into play because you feel like a fraud. You don't yeah. feel like you deserve what you're getting. You feel like surely sooner or later, somebody's going to find out I don't belong here. Mm. I don't deserve this. Mm -hmm. It's got to end sooner or later. And just the nerves and the anxiety of that, uh, whether it is a chemical addiction, a sexual addiction, whatever it is, that starts out as a means of numbing the pain. And then eventually it's just like, I've got to erase all feelings whatsoever I've got to be completely desensitized because this is just too big. That totally makes sense. And it does explain the, the fact that we often hear that people who are brilliant in their field, whatever it is, sometimes have really difficult personal lives, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. some really tragic or dysfunctional personal lives. And, and that really explains part of the thought process there is that they, um, can't accept the fact that they are as brilliant as they are. Which this is whole her, whole her, whole her words and salad. It's her whole story. Yeah. Her her redemption is when she can begin to accept. I'm 
I do deserve this. Yeah. I'm not a fraud. Exactly. And that leads into another theme, obviously, of this whole show is the idea of addiction. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it does such a compassionate job of showing addiction, not glamorizing it or making it seem like it's not a big deal. Beth's addiction to tranquilizers and then almost alcoholism and tranquilizer and, you know, just all of the different things. Well, and and I, I can't ever remember his name, the, the adoptive father... His addiction, yeah. which gets overlooked, he was addicted to sex outside the marriage for right. sure, and that's yeah. what split them. Yeah. So it's. I think it shows a great portrayal of the fact that very, pe- very few people set out to become addicts. Right. Many times, like if you look at Beth, like there's this external circumstance. She landed in an orphanage where they gave her tranquilizers, and, and that set her on the path. Mm-hmm. Um, other people may, you know just be looking for something like you were saying, whether you're brilliant or if you're just trying to cope with difficult life circumstances, you're just trying to take the edge off in the beginning and then it becomes something bigger and bigger and bigger, but you can kind of justify it. So Beth's justification all along the way is that the pills and the booze helped her to play. She believed that, that that was what helped her to see with clarity, the chessboard and the moves that she needed to make. And so for her to have this triumph over it at the end, to be like, oh, she doesn't actually need it yeah. to be able to be the chess player that she actually is was so huge. Do you have anything else on addiction or anything like that? No. Okay. Not that I can think of. All right. Well, finally, one thing that we just both found to be really fascinating was this interplay of Beth her search for identity, how that plays out in relationships, her quest ultimately for self-discovery, even though she wasn't maybe consciously trying to discover who she was, that that's an important part. This is a coming of age story Mm -hmm. and that that's a huge feature and a huge component of coming of age is beginning to think about who I am as a person. So, you know, in relationship wise, we kind of already touched on this, but with Beth and Harry, we have this dynamic where Harry can almost exclusively only see Beth as a prodigy, as somebody that he like respects and emulates. He comes originally to try to teach her and it becomes real clear to both of them after a short amount of time, like uh, there's nothing he can teach her. She already knows all of this. Right. Even, even at the scene, he whips out a box of books as litter, a box of books as my language skills are diminishing as we speak (laughs) or as we splack, Uh whichever it is. Um, He whips out a box of books to share with her. And she's literally read every one of them that he's pulling out. And you can see his beautifully, you can see his frustration and feeling like a failure that even he knew he wasn't good enough as a player to help her. He hoped his resources would be, and he's failing in every possible Avenue. Yeah. And so then we have Beth and Benny again, Benny kind of finds her to be a challenge. And he even says like sex is off the table. Well, that's the biggest bullshit line of the story. (laughs) That is absolutely his con. Yeah. He's, he's trying to double psychology his way into some action. Well, it worked. It, it did work, kind of. <laughs> I really feel like with, with these two, let's, uh, I hate to call them love interests. They ebb and flow throughout right. that. Right, yeah. So, I, I'm not a relationship expert. I've managed to keep you from leaving me for a handful of years. <laughs> That's about my strongest claim. But what I do personally believe I believe that women are attracted to men who are confident. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. What I think a lot of people don't appreciate is that the opposite is true. Men are deeply attracted to women who are confident. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is definitely what she is, which is abnormal right. in that time, especially outside the realm of what would be considered normal women's roles. Right. Absolutely, yes. And so she's just like, oh, my goodness. She's, she's attractive, which doesn't hurt at all either. But then here she's confident. They are all, they've, these two guys especially, they have assigned to her an image that she's not, but it's because of these factors and they're, they're smitten by their own creation of her in their mind. Right, exactly. Um, apparently in the book, which I have not read, but in the book, that relationship between Beth and Benny is much more fleshed out. There's a lot more to it. It doesn't get that much strong of a treatment in the series, but I thought that was interesting. But you had a great insight about Beth and Towns and Beth's attachment to Towns as believing that he's yeah. like the love of her life. So a major part of, of Beth's whole arc is dealing with abandonment issues. Right. Um, and Towns is definitely part of this. The others are as well, just he differently than the other two guys. So Beth was abandoned by her genetic father, her biological father, and then by her adoptive father. Mm -hmm. um, and she's, she's not reached a point where she could really recognize um, now I'm going to forget his name, the Mr. Scheibel. Mm -hmm. She's not really yet recognized him as what he was, which was the surrogate father. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a great one. Um, and so her idea of romantic involvement with Towns, it's equally as impossible as having a relationship with either of her fathers. He's he's homosexual. He's not. She may have confused him briefly, but that was not something that could happen. Right. Um, some psychological perspectives would suggest that it's the impossibility of the relationship that makes her more interested than him. Mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's a means of subconsciously feeling safe because she knows the relationship can't happen. She knows ahead of time what pain potentially there is to pretend like it can be something mm -hmm. and that it's a level of pain that she can be at peace with versus the who knows what could happen with somebody where the relationship were actually possible. It's, it's too many unknowns, too much possible pain there. Right. Um, so in effect, by choosing him, even if it's completely subconscious, she's protecting herself. Exactly. Exactly. Um, additionally, by emotionally clinging to towns, the other relationships she has with, with Benny and, uh, Harry. And Harry, these can really be held at arm's length. She can use them to battle her loneliness, but not really depend on them for anything more. Right, right. I thought that was such a great insight that on some level, she was able to kind of size up the situation and, and know like he is actually unattainable yeah. for me. So yeah. therefore he can never, I can never experience the pain. He'll never hurt me because it's never going to happen. Yes. Kind of thing. So we kind of already talked about this, but I just thought it was just so interesting that this became such a huge hit right now as people are looking for some kind of feel good story. Yes. Um, some kind of win. A win. Exactly. And it's not, it's a, it's a win that we all earned because this story has so many layers. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of depth to it, yes. but that ultimately to see her um, triumph 
and for it to be just like so beautiful to watch mm -hmm. as well it does mm -hmm. not hurt it at all the the cinematics of it are so gorgeous yeah um that it's hard to look away you've watched it twice now i may rewatch it a time or two because sure. it is just so so great yeah i i, I would think anybody that can't find a way to relate somehow some way to her is a liar mm -hmm. there's there's something in there for everybody to say yeah that yeah and, and to push a little bit further into this this time in life where we need we need a win we need a victory yeah um you know what's what's winning in a pandemic um not being sick yet yeah and it's it's a really sucky victory it's like it's like being the second worst team in the nation uh, as a football team or something. It's terrible. And then even to look at this most recent election, though by party line, somebody might claim, well, although we don't know yet, technically, but somebody might claim my party won. I don't, man, I don't honestly think either side can look at their candidate and think, I'm really happy this is who we brought to the table. It's, it's just a time where whatever victories we can find feel very cheap. Right, exactly. And again, this one brings with it such a hard-earned win. Yeah. You go on this very deep journey with Beth. You see her making the self-destructive decisions and you're like, no, and then you see it, you know, turn around at yep. the end. And it's just, I don't know, I just love it so much. So well done. Music's great. Wardrobe's yeah. great. Set design is fantastic. Of all the of all the reviews, and I have I did not pursue a ton of them. I don't so much care what a professional critic has to say because they're usually full of crap. Mm -hmm. And I'll back that up by saying of all the negative reviews that I did read or semi-negative even, boy, they were reaching. Yeah. They were they were working their tail off so that they didn't have to endorse it because they're trying to stay safe. Mm. So they don't endorse something that ends up not being as popular and then they feel like their credibility is hammered. Well, that's too bad for them. Because by definition, critic means you should be a cantankerous jerk, right? Well, yes, definitely. So, yeah, I, I poo-poo all those reviews and say no. If that's the best, whatever it was they picked, that's the best thing you can find to be dissatisfied with, well, I feel sorry for whoever claims to be your friend in life. <laughs> I poo-poo on you, sir. Yes, poop in your general direction. All right. Well, this was a departure from our usual format. Thank you for letting me yes. produce, produce this episode. Letting me insert myself with You've my enthusiasm. Already proven yourself as a producer with a whole other show, so yeah. it wasn't a big stretch to mm -hmm. let you have a swing. Yes, exactly. Well, this thank you for sharing it with me. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. And for the rest of you Yahoos, have an awesome today. Would you? Please do. Bye bye. Bye. We tremendously enjoyed the making of this show. If you hated it. Don't emotionally destroy us. Please. If you enjoy it, adopt the rescue animal and name it, Awesome Today. Find Awesome Today and Sorta Awesome Media on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok and literally everywhere podcasts are found. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 